Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Hello, hey, John. David. We're going to talk today about retirement. Not your retirement, not my retirement, <laughs> but Associate Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement from the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, I just want you to know that I'm not going to be retiring at all about this subject. I think Steve, Justice Breyer, Stephen Breyer, remarkable life of public service, remarkable wise man. How are you gonna, I suppose you're going to find a way to pick a fight here, no, I'm too, sure David, but not on my well, I'm watch. sure we'll have something to, to fight about. We may save it for the uh, confirmation for the next justice. But let's take some time actually to talk about Stephen Breyer and, frankly, about a, a different era that I think in some ways was a better era. Now, one of the things that uh, Justice Breyer and uh, you have in common, I think, is that he was actually an aide to the late, great Senator Ted Kennedy. I think you were as well. Am I, am I mistaken? Yes, I was sort of... I was sort of about as low a level aid as possible. I worked in auto pen, which meant I made sure the pen didn't fall out of the machine. And I delivered coffee when I was a college student as an intern in Senator Kennedy's office. But I did have the opportunity to, to observe just the kind of talent that Senator Ted Kennedy was able to actually uh, br bring to the office. And, you know, Justice Breyer, um, who I think, I think, uh, it was prior to him becoming a district judge in Massachusetts, but post the fact that he was working for, he'd been a professor at Harvard Law School, was one of many people. But I will say he really stood out for his kindness, his civility, and sort of a, a, a wry sense of humor. And uh, even then, you could tell this brilliant jurist, this, this kind of Harvard Law kind of professor, uh, was super practical. And I think that played out in his long legacy. I mean, he's almost as uh, old as you are, David, at 83. I mean, he's the longest, he's the oldest jurist on the court. And he does represent uh, a different era. Uh, than, and maybe maybe we should dig well, in. Well, John, I know you were trying to pick on me there. I won't, I won't take it personally if I look this good at 83. Well, your hairline yeah. is very similar to it's Justice very, Breyer's. very much very evocative. I know I, I, I was going to wear my robe today, but I, in uh, deference, I didn't. But, but John, you know, back when you were in, in Senator Kennedy's uh, office and uh, along with uh, uh, now Associate uh, Justice Breyer, you know, one of the things that I remember from that time uh, was that uh, listening to the radio in, in Washington, D.C., where I had, had grown up, is you'd have every week you'd, you'd hear a, a debate. They do it on the radio, Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hash a very conservative uh, member of the Senate uh, from Utah. And they were, came from different perspectives, for sure. They didn't agree with one another, but they actually worked together really well and crafted some legislation, worked together. And, and I think that uh, Justice Breyer was part of that, uh, that whole spirit. Oh, very much so. You know, he very famously, <clears throat> when he was the majority or minority counsel, um, <clears throat> that relates to whether they're Democrats or the Republicans are in the majority and his employer, Senator Kennedy was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He would pop on his bike at least once a week uh, to have breakfast with the opposing counsel from the party. And they would meet to have breakfast and brainstorm about how they might actually uh, broker compromises or, or, or make progress on things that they could agree on, full knowing well that they, um, you know, they didn't actually agree on much ideologically, but there was a lot that could help the, the people of the United States. It, Justice Breyer, and it's come out in 
some of his writings and some of his speeches famously said that, you know, a dissent is a failure and that if the, there's a choice between getting 20 or 30 percent of what you want and be a hero to your friends um, and uh, uh, or sorry, if you were to look for 100 percent and be a hero to your friends and get yeah. nothing versus get 20 to 30 percent by agreeing to work with the other side, whether that's an ideas or ideology, uh, he would always say, make progress with the 20 to 30% and that 100% of nothing is a failure. And that uh, that is a different approach to uh, law, jurisprudence, and frankly, conversation in the capital these days. It is a, um, you know, I don't know whether the people have changed or the environment has changed, but certainly all we hear about is the extremes. Well, John, the, the 20 to 30 percent uh, also, I think, is indicative of the fact that Justice Breyer worked under a conservative majority uh, most of the time. He wasn't talking about uh, 50 or 60 or 70 uh, percent. He also believed that the idea that judging requires judgments. I mean, no surprise, but that's, uh, you know, that's novel these days. And that's very different from originalism, which is some of the newest justices favor, where they sort of, you know, one true meaning and therefore it's hard to have a compromise. Let's talk about how some of uh, Justice Breyer's philosophy and his uh, approach and, in fact, his, uh, his tact and diplomacy applied uh, in the area of healthcare. But first, I'll ask you, John, I mean, was Justice Breyer important? Has he been important in the healthcare issue? Oh. oh, he's deeply important. I mean, he, in many ways, brokered the critical compromise on the court um, regarding the ACA. But, but, but he was also, he's been very impactful and influential on uh, women's right to choose and the abortion rights debate, uh, and had some had some pretty thoughtful approaches to uh, the line between federal and state responsibility on a number of issues, including Medicaid. But just those three are foundational to how we think about healthcare in America today, and all of them reflect uh, aspects of his uh, middle middle of the ground left leaning ideology that looked for solutions that were good for the American people. I mean, he was extremely thoughtful about the fact that we've got over 300 million people, and it's remarkable. He, he talked about this in his retirement, that they agree uh, on anything, and they don't. Uh, and so finding that middle ground. So maybe we we, we, we dig a little bit and just talk a, a little bit about his healthcare legacy, David. Do you want to yeah. just share with our, our listeners a little bit about how the ACA compromise came to happen. So if you remember the Affordable Care Act, of course, very uh, controversial, and when uh, the opponents were unable to defeat it legislatively, all manner of, of uh, litigation began, and it, it found its way to the Supreme Court. And a key case that, uh, that arrived at the court uh, focused on the individual mandate in particular, uh, which also tied into... Uh, people with pre-existing conditions, and also the Medicaid expansion addressed there as well. Now, Chief Justice Roberts didn't want the court to be perceived as political and partisan. And so he actually reached out to Justice Breyer and also Elena Kagan uh, to try to figure out something to do about it. And the result was Roberts voting to uphold the individual mandate, for which he got a lot of, uh, a lot of pushback uh, among uh, Republicans. And uh, Breyer and Kagan actually agreeing to strike down the Medicaid expansion. That actually fits with Breyer, some of Breyer's uh, earlier views about the roles of, of states. Well, the mandate, the mandate for the for the Medicaid expansion, that it would be a requirement and sort of a gun to the head of the states if they didn't accept it. 
it's a classic example of the 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 skill with which Justice Breyer would find that middle ground where how would we move the a policy forward. Um, and, and, and it reflected his, and it reflected, I think, both Justice Roberts and Justice Breyer's belief that to the, that it, that it is a, not the right role of the Supreme Court really to kind of pick too many political winners, but to try to help the country make progress. And one of the tragic things about the breakdown in civility, conversation, and compromise in ideology is that a lot of these issues that would normally be negotiated, uh, argued about, legislated, and worked out in Congress and the Senate, decided on or signed up by the president, are now kicked over to the court because uh, for whatever reason, people don't feel like they're getting enough resolution. There's not enough progress across the aisle. There's not enough progress, frankly, at all. People know that Congress is broken. And so the court then becomes the, the Supreme Court and local courts become the way to uh, arbitrate and actually decide some of these issues. And the ACA compromise is a great example of, a, of an American institution that was set up to work with two justice, with three justices, um, Kagan, Breyer, and uh, the, the lead justice, Justice Roberts, finding a way to, to, to create a path forward on something that was voted on and supported by the majority of Americans. Well, you know, it, it fit well with, uh, with, with what Breyer uh, wanted to do and, and some of his earlier uh, writings. Now, on the matter of being a healthcare wonk, I'm very comfortable. On the uh, jurisprudence, as you termed it earlier, I'm a little less so. But it, it, it turns out that uh, some of uh, Justice Breyer's work on Medicare and Medicaid actually had a big, was a big impact even uh, before uh, when he was an appeals court judge, before he was on the Supreme Court um, and related to uh, to Medicare. Uh, and there was actually uh, Ma Massachusetts Medical Society versus Governor Dukakis, uh, who we may uh, remember and is actually still around uh, in in uh, in Massachusetts. And it had to do with whether states could regulate balanced billing. And the idea is that Medicare is a federal program. And so usually what happens is that there's a doctrine of, of preemption, which usually uh, prevails. And if the feds do something, then the states are kind of powerless to do it. And so the, the well, explain explain what a balanced bill is while these Massachusetts Medical Society docs are defending gouging <laughs> the healthcare consumer. Maybe you could help explain what balanced billing is so people understand well, it. Balance, Come on. See, I was so focused on the uh, on the judicial side, I forgot about the healthcare side. So, of course, balanced billing is an unbalanced thing to do. That's the first thing to know about it. And what it means is that a doctor gets paid, a hospital, and they get paid by an insurance company or the federal government, and they say, you know what? That's not enough. The patient has a balance. I want to- More. I, wanna, I want I want to charge $1,000- and the insurance is only paying 300 so there's a $700 balance, and I'm going to try to bill the patient for it. That's balance billing, John, and patients don't like it, and the insurance companies don't like it either because they negotiate the rate and say, this is the rate, you accept it, and you know that's, that's how it is. So a lot of the doctors represented by the medical society said, hey, I want a balance bill, and guess what? The, the state can't make a rule that says I can't balance bill, and they figured they've got preemption on their side because the feds, you know, it's the federal issue, Medicare, whereas now the state is tackling it. But Breyer said that doesn't count here. Now, note, note that, yeah, we'll note that this is one of those classic cases where, look, they have, the doctors have signed up for Medicare. They've signed up for those rates in order to take Medicare patients in general. They said they'll accept the rates. This was just a bunch of local jokers 
deciding to upcharge the patient. It's exactly the kind of thing that drives me batty in healthcare. Uh, but what was really interesting is that um, Justice Breyer found a way because uh, it, it, it is it is sort of odd that the state would be able to regulate this program. But to your point, it founded on that founded on that issue of of, of the specificity of the preemption. Yeah, because the feds never really cared about balance billing. That wasn't their focus. And usually the states uh, deal with physician fee schedules. So, John, there was another thing with on Medicaid. Now, it's one thing that, you know, when he was an appeals court judge and he was the judge, he could rule. Now, when he's on the Supreme Court, he had to be uh, part of a coalition and had to figure out how to work with, in this case, Justice Scalia on Medicaid. And this had to do with uh, the feds. Conservative, the very conservative <laughs> yes. Justice Scalia. For that, now, for those who have not been around as long That's, as thank, thank you, John. Uh, feelings mutual. So in Idaho, they set uh, home care rates too low to attract providers and federal law says, hey, you have to set it high enough to attract providers. And Scalia said, you know, no way federal courts can ever enforce anything to do with Medicaid. Uh, whereas Breyer said, well, you know, that's okay. I accept that element, but now let's have a couple of other ways that uh, someone can challenge Medicare on this. One, CMS itself, Medicare and Medicaid services could penalize the state if their rates are too low, and people could sue Medicare if the rates are too low. So he found a way to make it work while still allowing Scalia to have his hard right view. Yeah, I mean, again, that's, that's I, 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 that opinion of just of, of conservative Justice Scalia, who was the lead judge, I believe, at the court at that point, uh, was that um, it's a state's rights versus federal rights issue. Uh, and because, however, the program is truly funded on both sides, Breyer found a way to get a compromise. Now, David, let's talk a little bit about women's right to choose, right, access to abortion, because that's obviously a hot yeah. topic. It's going to be in front of the court. It's They avoided making a, a judgment call on that weird uh, uh, Texas yeah. sort of enforcement outside of law enforcement um, around uh, around abortion, but you maybe talk a little bit about as part of his healthcare legacy what happened uh, when those issues were in front of Justice Breyer, the issues of access to uh, safe uh, safe so abortions. So, generally speaking, you know, Justice Breyer doesn't have one specific philosophy. Looks, judgment, you know, judging requires judgment, as we as we had mentioned before. There are a couple of areas where he's actually very outspoken and dogmatic. One is about the death penalty which he's against because he doesn't think there's any fair way to apply it. And the other one is about abortion rights. And so this is kind of an exception to his view on judicial restraint. You know, Justice Ginsburg, she outlined a very kind of specific reasons why uh, abortion rights were necessary to allow women to participate fully in society and, and have their other rights under the Constitution. Breyer hasn't done that, but he's always been very, um, very much in favor of preserving uh, the right to choose. Now, there's a there's a case in Mississippi, not the Texas case, but another one. It's coming up this summer where Breyer is likely to still be on the bench at that point. Now, he has been very tough in his questioning uh, with this Mississippi law. And he said, you know, the court's going to lose its credibility if it overturns Roe versus Wade. Some of these newer justices that focus on originalism don't pay a lot of um, attention to the, the precedents that have been set. And so I don't think Breyer is going to really change what the court does here. He's really in the in the in the minority. But I think he's right uh, that the can't, court can't just start going and overturning uh, well-set uh, law along, along partisan lines and, and still have credibility. Yeah, I, I think that in, um, in, in the case 
I mean, he, he's it, it, the death penalty one is the one that I'm most intrigued by because his he's been very consistent in saying that it, because it can't be administered fairly, it should never be administered at all. On abortion, it's going to be interesting. Perhaps this will be his opportunity to explain his definition or defense of the right to privacy in this case, because these are these are I can't imagine an issue that there are. Um, it's a hard to imagine many issues where the passions on both sides are as 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 hot and as fierce and the likely middle ground so difficult to to find if you know it's really sort of sad as we go in because this the mississippi case is not the last one there's three or four right. other ones percolating up the courts um this is exactly the time when we need that kind of a justice uh, a briar who's a compromiser and a progress maker and who understands the danger of relying on um, uh, uh, by definition, unrepresentative representative court um, that has been appointed over time with lifetime appointments to make um, make the hard political decisions that really should be made on at the state and federal legislative level. That's what the founders intended. Speaking of judicial there we originalism, go, John. so David, what about this? What about this? Uh, what comes next? I mean, there's always a, a, a new excitement in DC. Yeah. What about the what about the process to get a new? Well, justice? John, we're talking about uh, healthcare here, and it, it's actually, it's actually relevant because you know the Democrats have the barest of majorities, and unlike when uh, Justice Breyer was, uh, you know, he was confirmed by an overwhelming majority, something like eighty-eight to ten. Uh, you know, now it's going to be around fifty-fifty, probably, just because like everything else. And the healthcare thing is that uh, <laughs> there's a lot of old senators, John. There's a lot of senators older than us, much older even, but there's, but much there's a older. few younger. And one of the youngers, Senator Lujan actually had a stroke, sadly, and, uh, and he's on the Democratic side. And so now, you know, they, the, the Democrats don't really have a majority. Now they may, by the time, you know, that things can, can work through in the Senate as its own complex uh, place. So I think right now the smart money is on Michelle Childs because South Carolina and Senator Lindsey Graham in old style, maybe Orrin Hatch style, is actually uh, supporting her. You just called Lindsey Graham um, the Trump's golf golf buddy, um, who is a tool of the crazy yeah. right, a middle of the I roader. I what said old style. About? He so he actually back in the old. There's, there's some like vestiges. You know, like he still have an appendix for no real reason. So this is sort of like he's like the appendix of the Republican Party. You know, he still has somebody who. I do not. I do not have an appendix. We're not exactly. Get into that. So anyway, he, he you, many people were born with them. So and, he, and and some have been taken out, including the old Republican Party. Nonetheless, uh, yeah, he still may he supports them as as does uh, Representative. A Claiborne. And so I think that's where the smart money is. We'll have a whole uh, session, I think, when there is a new nominee and talk about presumably her uh, background in healthcare and how uh, it may uh, relate to the court. Right now, honestly, we're just talking about, um, you know, the Democrats are way, way behind on, on the court. And frankly, whoever they pick isn't going to make that much of a difference. Don't forget that Merrick Garland's, uh, you know, President Obama's right to nominate somebody and have them considered was stolen. Uh, by the Republicans. And that's one reason why the court is so imbalanced and that imbalance is likely to continue for some time. Well, David, I think that that's probably about as much as we know about jurisprudence. <laughs> so I'm not sure we should go Let's much deeper. It, John. But I will say, I do think, I do think that this is 
a real loss. I mean, ultimately, politics and administration in, is it's not just the justice that, that is about judgment. It's also about kind of managing and leading. And uh, this is a loss to the country. And um, he's a, in, an incredibly talented compromiser and jurist uh, and just a very decent human being. And we are sorry to see him go. Well, that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Compromise. Please subscribe to Care Talk on your favorite service.